I want a 24-hour truce during which there is no rape by Andrea Dworkin. This was a speech given at the Midwest Regional Conference of the National Organization for Changing Men in the fall of 1983 in St. Paul, Minnesota. One of the organizers kindly sent me a tape and a transcript of my speech. The magazine of the men's movement, M, published it. I was teaching in Minneapolis. This was before Catherine McKinnon and I had proposed or developed the civil rights approach to pornography as a legislative strategy. Lots of people were in the audience who later became key players in the fight for the civil rights bill. I didn't know them then. It was an audience of about 500 men with scattered women. I spoke from notes and was actually on my way to Idaho, an eight-hour road trip each way because of bad air connections, to give a one-hour speech on art. Fly out Saturday, come back Sunday, can't talk more than one hour or you'll miss the only plane leaving that day. You have to run from the podium to the car for the two-hour drive to the plane. Why would a militant feminist under this kind of pressure stop off on her way to the airport to say hi to 500 men? In a sense, this was a feminist dream come true. What would you say to 500 men if you could? This is what I said, how I used my chance. The men reacted with considerable love and support and also with considerable anger, both. I hurried out to get my plane, the first hurdle for getting to Idaho. Only one man in the 500 threatened me physically. He was stopped by a woman bodyguard and friend who had accompanied me. I've thought a great deal about how a feminist like myself addresses an audience primarily of political men who say that they are anti-sexist. And I thought a lot about whether there should be a qualitative difference in the kind of speech I address to you. And then I found myself incapable of pretending that I really believe that qualitative difference exists. I've watched the men's movement for many years. I'm close with some of the people who participate in it. I can't come here as a friend, even though I might very much want to. What I would like to do is scream. And in that scream, I would have the screams of the raped and the sobs of the battered. And even worse, in the center of that scream, I would have the deafening sound of women's silence. That silence into which we are born because we are women and in which most of us die. And if there would be a plea or a question or a human address in that scream, it would be this. Why are you so slow? Why are you so slow to understand the simplest things, not the complicated ideological things? You understand those. The simple things, the cliches, simply that women are human to precisely the, the degree and quality that you are. And also that we do not have time. We women, we don't have forever. Some of us don't have another week or another day to take time for you to discuss whatever it is that will enable you to go out into those streets and do something. We are very close to death. All women are. And we are all very close to rape and we are all very close to beating. And we are inside a system of humiliation from which there is no escape for us. We use statistics not to try to quantify the injuries, but to convince the world that those injuries even exist. Those statistics are not abstractions. It is easy to say, ah, oh, the statistics, somebody writes them up one way and somebody writes them up another way. That's true, but I hear about the rapes one by one by one by one by one, which is also how they happen. Those statistics are not abstract to me. Every three minutes, a woman is being raped. Every 18 seconds, a woman is being beaten. There's nothing abstract about it. It is happening right now as I am speaking. And it is happening for a simple reason. There's nothing complex and difficult about the reason.
Men are doing it because of the kind of power that men have over women. That power is real, concrete, exercised from one body to another body, exercised by someone who feels he has a right to exercise it, exercised in public and exercised in private. It is the sum and substance of women's oppression. It is not done 5,000 miles away or 3,000 miles away. It is done here and it is done now and it is done by the people in this room as well as by other contemporaries, our friends, our neighbors, people that we know. Women don't have to go to school to learn about power. We just have to be women, walking down the street or trying to get the housework done after having given one body in marriage and then having no rights over it. The power exercised by men day to day in life is power that is institutionalized. It is protected by law. It is protected by religion and religious practice. It is protected by universities, which are strongholds of male supremacy. It is protected by a police force. It is protected by those whom Shelley called the unacknowledged legislators of the world, the poets, the artists. Against that power, we have silence. It is an extraordinary thing to try to understand and confront why it is that men believe. And men do believe that they have the right to rape. Men may not believe it when asked. Everybody raise your hands who believes they have the right to rape. Not too many hands will go up. It's in life that men believe they have the right to force sex, which they don't call rape. And it is an extraordinary thing to try to understand that men really believe that they have the right to hit and to hurt. And it is equally extraordinary thing to try to understand that men really believe that they have the right to buy a woman's body for the purpose of having sex, and that is a right. And it is very amazing to try to understand that men believe that the $7 billion industry that provides men with cunts is something that men have a right to. That is the way the power of men manifests in real life. That is what theory about male supremacy means. It means you can rape. It means you can hit. It means you can hurt. It means you can buy and sell women. It means that there is a class of people there to provide you with what you need. You stay richer than they are so that they have to sell you sex. Not just on street corners, but in the workplace. That's another right that you can presume to have. Sexual access to any woman in your environment when you want. Now, the men's movement suggests that men don't want the kind of power I've just described. I've actually heard explicit whole sentences to that effect. And yet, everything is a reason not to do something about changing the fact that you do have that power. Hiding behind guilt, that's my favorite. I love that one. Oh, it's horrible, yes, and I'm so sorry. You have the time to feel guilt. We don't have the time for you to feel guilty. Your guilt is a form of acquiescence in what continues to occur. Your guilt helps keep things the way they are. I have heard in the last several years a great deal about the suffering of men over sexism. Of course, I have heard a great deal about the suffering of men all my life. Needless to say, I have read Hamlet, I have read King Lear, I am an educated woman. I know that men suffer. This is a new wrinkle. Implicit in the idea that this is a different kind of suffering is the claim, I think, that in part you are actually suffering because of something that you know happens to someone else. That would indeed be new. But mostly your guilt, your suffering, reduces to, gee, we really feel so bad. Everything makes men feel so bad. What you do, what you don't do, what you want to do, what you don't want to want to do, but you are going to do anyway. I think most of your distress is, gee, we really feel so bad. And I'm sorry that you feel so bad, so uselessly and stupidly bad, because there is a way in which this is really your tragedy. And I don't mean because you can't cry, and I don't mean because there is no real intimacy in your lives, and I don't mean because the armor that you have to live with as men is stultifying, and I don't doubt that it is, but I don't mean any of that.
I mean that there is a relationship between the way that women are raped and your socialization to rape and the war machine that grinds you up and spits you out. The war machine that you go through just like that woman went through on Larry Flint's meat grinder on the cover of Hustler. You know damn well better to believe that you're involved in this tragedy and that it's your tragedy too. Because you're turned into little soldier boys from the day that you are born and everything that you learn how to avoid the humanity of women becomes part of the militarism of the country in which you live and the world in which you live. It is also part of the economy that you frequently claim to protest. And the problem is that you think it's out there and it's not out there. It's in you. The pimps and the warmongers speak for you. Rape and war are not so different. And what the pimps and the warmongers do is that they make you so proud of being men who can get it up and give it hard. And they take that acculturated sexuality and they put you in little uniforms and they send you out to kill and to die. Now, I'm not going to suggest to you that I think that's more important than what you do to women, because I don't. But I think that if you want to look at what this system does to you, then that is where you should start looking. The sexual politics of aggression, the sexual politics of militarism. I think that men are very afraid of other men. That is something that you sometimes try to address in your small groups, as if if you changed your attitudes towards each other, you wouldn't be afraid of each other. But as long as your sexuality has to do with aggression and your sense of entitlement to humanity has to do with being superior to other people, then there is so much contempt and hostility in your attitudes towards women and children. How could you not be afraid of each other? I think that you rightly perceive, without being willing to face it politically, that men are very dangerous, because you are. The solution of the men's movement to make men less dangerous to each other by changing the way you touch and feel each other is not a solution. It's a recreational break. These conferences are also concerned with homophobia. Homophobia is very important. It is very important to the way male supremacy works. In my opinion, the prohibitions against male homosexuality exist in order to protect male power. Do it to her. That is to say, as long as men rape, it is very important that men be directed to rape women. As long as sex is full of hostility and expresses both power over and contempt for the other person, it is very important that men not be declassed, stigmatized as female, used similarly. The power of a man as a class depends on keeping men sexually inviolate and women sexually used by men. Homophobia helps maintain that class power. It also helps keep you as individuals safe from each other, safe from rape. If you want to do something about homophobia, you are going to have to do something about the fact that men rape and that forced sex is not incidental to male sexuality, but is in practice paradigmatic. Some of you are very concerned about the rise of the right in this country, as if that is something separate from the issues of feminism or the men's movement. There is a cartoon I saw that brought it all together nicely. It was a picture of Ronald Reagan as a cowboy with a big hat and a gun. And it said, a gun in every holster, a pregnant woman in every home. Make America a man again. Those are the politics of the right. If you are afraid of the, of the ascendancy of fascism in this country, and you would be very foolish not to be right now, then you had better understand that the root issue here has to do with male supremacy and the control of women, sexual access to women, women as reproductive slaves, private ownership of women. That is the program of the right. That is the morality they talk about. That is what they mean. That is what they want. And the only opposition to them that matters is an opposition to men owning women. What's involved in doing something about all of this? 
the men's movement seems to stay stuck on two points. The first is that men don't really feel very good about themselves. How could you? The second is that men come to me or to other feminists and say, what you're saying about men isn't true. It isn't true of me. I don't feel that way. I'm opposed to all of this. And I say, don't tell me. Tell the pornographers. Tell the pimps. Tell the war makers. Tell the rape apologists and the rape celebrationists and the pro-rape ideologues. Tell the novelists who think that rape is wonderful. Tell Larry Flint. Tell Hugh Hefner. There's no point in telling me. I'm only a woman. There's nothing I can do about it. These men presume to speak for you. They're in the public arena saying that they represent you. If they don't, then you had better let them know. Then there's the private world of misogyny. What you know about each other, what you say in private life, the exploitation that you see in the private sphere, the relationships called love based on exploitation. It's not enough to find some traveling feminist on the road and go up to her and say, gee, I hate it. Say it to your friends who are doing it. And there are streets out there on which you can say these things loud and clear so as to affect the actual institutions that maintain these abuses. You don't like pornography? I wish I could believe it's true. I will, I will believe it when I see you on the streets. I will believe it when I see an organized political opposition. I will believe it when pimps go out of business because there are no more male consumers. You want to organize men? You don't have to search for issues. The issues are part of the fabric of your everyday lives. I want to talk to you about equality, what equality is and what it means. It isn't just an idea. It's not some insipid word that ends up being bullshit. It doesn't have anything at all to do with all those statements like, oh, that happens to men too. I name an abuse and I hear, oh, it happens to men too. That is not the equality we are struggling for. We could change our strategy and say, well, okay, we want equality. We'll stick something up the ass of every man every three minutes. You've never heard that from the feminist movement, because for us, equality has real dignity and importance. It's not some dumb word that can be twisted and made to look stupid as if it had no real meaning. As a way of practicing equality, some vague idea about giving up power is useless. Some men have vague thoughts about a future in which men are going to give up power or an individual man is going to give up some kind of privilege that he has. That is not what equality means either. Equality is a practice. It is an action. It is a way of life. It is a social practice. It is an economic practice. It is a sexual practice. It can't exist in a vacuum. You can't have it in your home if, when the people leave the home, he is in a world of his supremacy based on the existence of his cock and she is in a world of humiliation and degradation because she is perceived to be inferior and because of her sexuality is a curse. This is not to say that the attempts to practice equality in the home don't matter. It matters, but it is not enough. If you love equality, if you believe in it, if it is the way you want to live, not just men and women together in a home, but men and men together in a home and women and women together in a home, if equality is what you want and what you care about, then you have to fight for the institutions that will make it socially real. It is not just a matter of your attitude. You can't think it and make it exist. You can't try sometimes when it works to your advantage and throw it out the rest of the time. Equality is a discipline. It is a way of life. It is a political necessity to create equality in institutions. And another thing about equality is that it cannot coexist with rape. It cannot. And it cannot coexist with pornography or with prostitution or with the economic degradation of women on any level, in any way. It cannot coexist because implicit in all those things is the inferiority of women. 
I want to see this men's movement make a commitment to ending rape because that is the only meaningful commitment to equality. It is astonishing that in all our words of feminism and anti-sexism, we never talk seriously about ending rape, ending it, stopping it, no more, no more rape. In the back of our minds, are we holding on to its inevitability as the last preserve of the biological? Do we think that it is always going to exist no matter what we do? All of our political actions are lies if we don't make a commitment to ending the practice of rape. This commitment has to be political. It has to be serious. It has to be systematic. It has to be public. It can't be self-indulgent. The things the men's movement has wanted are things worth having. Intimacy is worth having. Tenderness is worth having. Cooperation is worth having. A real emotional life is worth having. But you can't have them in a world with rape. Ending homophobia is worth doing, but you can't do it in a world with rape. Rape stands in the way of each and every one of those things you say you want. And by rape, you know what I mean. A judge does not have to walk into this room and say that according to statute such and such, these are the elements of proof. We're talking about any kind of coerced sex, including sex coerced by poverty. You can't have equality or tenderness or intimacy as long as there is rape, because rape means terror. It means that part of the population lives in a state of terror and pretends to please and pacify you that it doesn't. So there is no honesty. How can there be? Can you imagine what it is like to live as a woman day in and day out with the threat of rape? Or what it is like to live with the reality? I want to see you use those legendary bodies and that legendary strength and that legendary courage and the tenderness that you say you have in behalf of women. And that means against the rapists, against the pimps, and against the pornographers. It means something more than a personal renunciation. It means a systematic, political, active public attack. And there has been very little of that. I came here today because I don't believe that rape is inevitable or natural. If I did, I would have no reason to be here. If I did, my political practice would be different than it is. Have you ever wondered why we are not in armed combat against you? It's not because there's a shortage of kitchen knives in this country. It's because we believe in your humanity against all the evidence. We do not want to do the work of helping you to believe in your humanity. We cannot do it anymore. We have always tried. You have been, we have been repaid with the systematic exploitation and systematic abuse. You are going to have to do this yourselves from now on, and you know it. The shame of men in front of women is, I think, an appropriate response both to what men do do and to what men do not do. I think you should be ashamed. But what you do with that shame is to use it as an excuse to keep doing what you want and keep not doing anything else. And you've got to stop. You've got to stop. Your psychology does not matter. How much you hurt doesn't matter in the end anymore than how much we hurt matters. If we sat around and only talked about how much rape hurt us, do you think that there would have been one of the changes that you have seen in this country in the last 15 years? There wouldn't have been. It is true that we have had to talk to each other. How else, after all, were we supposed to find out that each of us was not the only woman in the world who was not asking for it to whom rape or battery had ever happened? We couldn't read it in the newspapers, not then. We couldn't find it, a book about it. But you do know, and now the question is what you are going to do. And so your shame and your guilt are very much besides the point. They don't matter to us at all, in any way. They're not good enough, and they don't do anything. As a feminist, I carry the rape of all the women I've talked to over the past 10 years personally with me. As a woman, I carry my own rape with me. 
you remember pictures that you've seen of European cities during the plague when there were wheelbarrows that would go along and people would just pick up corpses and throw them in? Well, that is what it is like knowing about rape. Piles and piles and piles of bodies that have whole lives and human names and human faces. I speak for many feminists, not only myself, when I tell you that I am tired of what I know and sad beyond any words I have about what has already been done to women up to this point, now up to 2.24pm on this day, here in this place. And I want one day of respite, one day off, one day in which no new bodies are piled up, one day in which no new agony is added to the old, and I am asking you to give it to me. And how could I ask you for less? It is so little. And how could you offer me less? It is so little. Even in wars, there are days of truce. Go and organize a truce. Stop your side for one day. I want a 24-hour truce during which there is no rape. I dare you to try it. I demand that you try it. I don't mind begging you to try it. What else could you possibly be here to do? What else could this movement possibly mean? What else could matter so much? And on that day, that day of truce, that day when not one woman is raped, we will begin the real practice of equality. Because we can't begin it before that day. Before that day, it means nothing, because it is nothing. It is not real. It is not true. But on that day, it becomes real. And then, instead of rape, we will, for the first time in our lives, both men and women, begin to experience freedom. If you have a conception of freedom that includes the existence of rape, you are wrong. You cannot change what you say you want to change. For myself, I want to experience just one day of real freedom before I die. I leave you here to do that for me and for the women whom you say you love.